welcome back to the Value Adds Value podcast with Kyle Krieger and Wilkie Law, where we're sharing inspiring stories of educators just like yourself, helping you to develop your craft and sharpen your tools to become the teacher your students deserve. This is the Value Adds Value podcast. Let's jump into this next episode. What's up, fam? It is episode two of season three of the Value Adds Value podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my guy, Wilkie V. Law the Third. You heard? What up? Man, as I said in my uh, my intro to the summer, program, summer camp that I'm teaching, it's me, Mr. Dub V3. Can't forget about the L.A. Dub. That's me. That's Law. I love it. I said I'm going to have to get L.A. Dub. LA Dub. It's me. You should you should have a well, I guess you can't really co-op the LA Dodgers logo, but if you could somehow take that and like put a W on it somewhere, it'd be a really cool hat logo. I'm just saying, yeah. I'm just it really would be. I'm just saying. But you know, lids are very lids of lid is very um they're very uh particular. Yeah. Oh, yeah. but I just, oh, it's possible though. I like that. I'm yeah. going to play around with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Get, get my art teacher, Miss Davis, on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So this is episode two of season three. Uh, we started last week by talking about the discourse that is required for relationships. And we we really talked about just on the personal side, we talked about the current political climate and, and, you know, where we stand on things like nuance and the need to listen. Uh, I mean, if we could really sum up what the first episode was last week, uh, it was really about why we need to listen in order for discourse to happen. And you referenced Mm -hmm. the fact that that discourse and its root was a to and fro. So you give a little bit, you get a little bit, um, and, and really why people right now are not listening. And, and if you want to cycle back, Will, and just kind of explain that, that idea you, you referenced about how people don't want to listen because they don't want to have their views challenged. And I, yeah, and I think that without going all the way back there, that is basically where we are across the board, is that we, we talked about that, that idea that I don't want to talk about it because they don't want to listen really is that projection of, I don't want to talk about it because I don't really want to listen to you. And I know by opening up my story, it requires me in give and take. We know, we, we know that much. If, if I open up, it requires you. It requires me to have to be present for you when you open up. And a lot of times, I just want you to listen to me. Don't talk, don't, don't, I don't want to hear your part. I don't want to hear your side. Just listen to me, soapbox it, and, and, and I'm good. Because I want you to agree with me. And we talked about that whole idea of the infinite game versus the finite game. You know, last time I checked, I wasn't keeping score. You know, the whole idea is how do we, how do we keep this going? How do we keep things moving? And the only way to do that 
is through proper discourse. So that is perfect. And what we want to do on, on this episode particularly, and we mentioned in the prior episode that this season and inevitably or uh, indefinitely is the word I wanted to use going forward. We're going to be talking about relationships. We felt like when we started the podcast, that was what we were talking about. That's what's really close to our heart. Um, and that's what we think is going to make the biggest difference. So we wanted to talk on this episode and, and come back around to this idea that discourse is required for relationships with students and discourse is required for the relationship with parents. And we talked on the last episode, Will, and you brought up how often our conversations can get soapboxy and turn into a monologue. And that is something that I know myself as a teacher, I've struggled with. And that is something that I'm sure almost every teacher out there at some point has struggled with. You know, you have this idea that you're the authority, that your opinion is the one that matters. And we struggle and and I could relate this back to when I first met you at Stellick and those that struggle, especially that first year to even entertain that a student's perspective could somehow be valid. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I don't mean to cut you off, but that that the thinking about the difference between personal and professional, I can remember seeing the struggle, but not having the relationship there because we really had not opened up the discourse that it made it harder for me to even want to approach. Because I think our first approach was was on a personal level because the first approach was about physical fitness. Because at that time you were in the CrossFit and, 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 and we started having that discourse because, you know, as everybody knows, that's one of my struggle and I'm getting there. Slowly, you are. You getting it. Asapacito. So, um, Asapacito. So it's like that. That you have to. That struggle was there even between you and I in the very, very beginning mm-hmm. to identify what was going to be what we needed to get in. Right. You know, and 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 that's the thing with it. So me at that time, let's see, that's twenty thirteen. It's twenty twenty. I was. 29 years old, 30 years old, and not in a position to receive feedback because of where I was at emotionally and mentally. And now we're talking about for us middle school kids who are 12 to 15, who don't have the experience, who don't have the life, you know, and, and, we're expecting to do the same thing. We're expecting them to just listen to what we say just because. And the word that keeps coming back to me is authority. And for so long, I think teachers just traded on authority rather than discourse because for so long, teachers didn't need discourse. Mm -hmm. What they told you was gospel and that's not the case anymore it it really isn't and not even so much in education that it's not the case that we're not the authority but we have learned that what we need in education more than anything right now is discourse 
Mm-hmm. And that's one of the biggest things that COVID taught you is that without discourse, it is impossible to engage. If For those teachers who were just a sage that just taught, 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 and never received anything from their kids, it was difficult for them to transition into distance learning or crisis learning, whatever you want to call it. Because it conflicted with everything. I'm no longer the sage on the stage. Will kids come just to hear me? Or does kids or do kids come because they want to share with me and they want to engage with me, engage in discourse with me about a topic? You know what I mean? Yeah, and I remember Ace, and I and I want to give credit where it's due, because it was a couple months ago that we were talking with our team and and Ace Schwartz was talking, but he made those two points that our kids miss the discourse of school and that we can't expect our parents to be interested in hearing our perspective when we haven't built any relationship with them at all. And what I want to ask you when it comes to discourse in the classroom, because I think discourse right now is kind of being co-opted. And I think people are going to say, well, we can't just have discourse about social justice, which I understand. We still have all these things we need to, to, to teach our kids content-wise. But how do we make discourse in its truest form a part of our, our day-to-day? Because I think if we could improve the discourse of our kids, it would improve their ability to talk about things like social justice. I think, first off, I think number one, it can't be a one-off. It can't be, discourse can't be something that we, we do in the classroom. Discourse actually has to be the model that we teach in. Um, it can't be forced. In the beginning, you have to kind of, you kind of have to pull kids into having those conversations, draw them in, and you can't draw them in by always talking. How do you draw them in? And this is, this is one of the big things that I, I did an entire PD on this, uh, I think last summer, no, last winter break. It's the questions you ask. It's questioning strategies. So in order for discourse to work, you have to become a master questioner. You have to be able to phrase a question and state a question in such a way that prompts a discussion. You know, I love throwing questions out that when kids hear it, you hear, you automatically hear kids always want to answer. And I, the first thing I say was, hold on, hold on, wait, one mic. Then you have one kid who will begin to speak. And then when that kid is done, you'll have another kid who interjects. And then your job then as a teacher is just to facilitate and guide that that conversation, that discourse between the students and yourself. And then you help them connect the dots on how it works. And that works across any subject. Proper questioning strategies to get kids. You know, when I create my lesson plans, as I'm looking at the concepts that I'm teaching, 
the first thing I'm saying is what questions do I need to ask? Not what do I need to teach them? What questions do I need to ask so that they can learn it? Because again, they're not going to learn it from me. They're going to learn it from the conversation, the discourse that we have. Because when they grapple in discourse, when they see, no, I don't see that. No, I don't see that. That doesn't make sense. I remember one of the best conversations we had was about the three sides and what makes a triangle. Before I even taught the three theorem, the triangle inequality theorem, the first question I asked was, um, if I gave you any three size sides, size sides, can you make a triangle? I say, talk to your neighbor about it. They talk to their neighbor. Then I said, okay, now, now as a class, who, ha- who thinks they, they, they have a good group? I think you can. You can always make a triangle. You can da 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 da. Okay, let's do you know what a triangle is? It's a polygon. Okay, it's a polygon. What's the definition of a polygon? It's a closed figure. A closed figure. So you're telling me that it doesn't matter the side lengths. If I give you any size side lengths, you can make a triangle. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. And you literally started getting this debate back and forth. The moment that happened, when I began to give them things, the angle legs, and they began to see it. Now, they grappled with that idea already. So in their mind, they've already visually tried to, to, to obtain what they thought. The moment they actually got a manipulative and something they can hold on to, to put the pieces together, then all of a sudden, all over it. I purposely didn't split the room. Eventually, I mean, initially I was gonna split the room with the yeses and the noes, but then I was like, that's gonna pit them too much against each other right now. And I don't want the whole, I told you so. So I left them in their groups where you had some yeses, some noes all across. And then all of a sudden you hear the, oh, oh, wow. And all of a sudden, did I really need to go any more depth in the triangle inequality theorem? No, because they automatically understood it. Now all I had to do was explain to them what is the rules that govern that, what you just discovered. That is cementing the learning in through the discourse, not so much me sitting there teaching them, well, the triangle inequality theorem says that A plus B has to be, you know what I mean? So I think that when you look at what makes this course in the classroom, number one, it can't be a one-off. Number two, it has to be, your culture has to be one of discourse and it has to be built around your questioning strategies. Um. I would like to ask you a question because I think it's something that teachers struggle with. And I know that I did, and I'm going to kind of frame this question. I grew up in small town, Wisconsin without any people of color. Needless to say, when I got to Houston, I did not understand the Hispanic nor the uh, uh, black culture in terms of how they talk to one another. And I'm not saying the insults and the words and the verbiage, but they can get loud and it can get what looks like out of control, but it isn't necessarily out of control. So how, how is a person who potentially would be in the same shoes that I have? Cause I believe that there are still a lot of people that grew up with like me that are going to urban areas from places they don't have a lot of experience with people of color. And I know for me, 
that I had this kind of negative um, view on the way those people talk to each other. So how do we change that perspective and paradigm from, from that perspective of understanding how different cultures communicate in different ways? The only way is to engage with people from other cultures. You know, um, growing up in, in, in a black family, um, it got pretty loud. Um, it was very, it's very passionate. Um, you know, even, I mean, like from playing dominoes to, to eating dinner and just having a conversation. Um, it, it, it's the only way to really understand it is to engage in it. Um, and it, it's, it's hard because again, there's that fear factor of the unknown of, but it's also sh- shifting your mindset from, from judging, take it away from being a judge to being a participant. You know, it's funny what you said. And I'm trying to think of this because one of, you know, as we've been talking about this third season of Value Ed's Value going on our fourth year of doing a podcast, we have to be addressing the climate and the rate and the situation and racial issues. And you could have very easily described my large Italian family. Mm-hmm. And Where there are a lot of similarities there, though. There is. So but, you've already, you had already experienced it, but because you had never experienced it within the black, fam, black culture or within the Latin culture that are within, you know, other cultures that, that you know, I think... That, I think yeah, that, that pretty much sums up the, the, the big miles. I have a lot of friends who are Italian. You know, I, I, I yeah. think they're, they're pretty rambunctious, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, mm-hmm. and really, if you don't understand, very crude. Yeah. You very, know, stra- the, very straightforward, very blunt. Very much so, which is the exact same thing in our culture. The exact same thing in the Latin culture. But because you had never experienced it outside of your norm, then, um, because you had not experienced it, now it is a situation where you look at it and say, why are they doing this without connecting it to the fact that this is what my family does anyway also. Well, and, and I know that somewhere, and I won't say explicitly, but implicitly, it was always taught that black people are just loud. That's that's just what they do. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like another one of those places where, you know, because on the last episode, we talked about reasons why people aren't willing to listen to each other. And it felt and it feels like to me, that's another excuse for why people that look like me aren't willing to listen to people of color is because they say, well, they're just too loud and they won't listen to them just because they talk loud or, or, or situations like that. And I I don't know exactly how that fits in with what we were talking about with, with our kids right now, 
but I had to at least bring that up because I hope that someone who looks like me, when they listen to this, will have just that little bit of different perspective that I didn't 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Because I took loudness as disrespect when I started my career. Because you did not connect it with the fact that your family did the exact same thing. Because these people, they don't look like me. And the preconceived notion, you know, um, to be prejudiced means simply to prejudge people. So let's just let's just put that out there. So when people were like, there's a difference between being prejudiced and being racist. There's a difference. Prejudice is everybody holds some type of prejudice. Everyone. Let's just let's just put it out, America. Come on, teachers, admit. Everyone holds some type of prejudice about another group, uh, a, a certain area of their town, a certain area within their own school, a certain population. Everyone holds a certain prejudice. You know, whether it's the, the, the oh, you know, the teacher who says, oh, I have 15 Asian kids. And they're like, oh, you got 15 kids that, that you got. Well, then you got a bunch of smart kids. Come on, man. Seriously. So you're going to automatically assume that's a prejudice. Oh, I got this classroom full of black kids. Oh, oh, your scores are going to be low. That's a prejudice. And we say those things. We feel those things. We may not articulate them out loud in front of public, but we definitely look at our roster and like, oh, they put me with all the black kids. And it, in, and it influences you Absolutely. subconsciously, you know, and I want to come back to this too of it shouldn't matter whether my yeah it's great that i should appreciate the fact that their culture is very similar to mine but even if it's not it shouldn't it shouldn't be a detriment to them mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. i can't know that until i start building relationships and I, I don't know how many times growing up before i moved to houston and even while i was there i heard white people talk about how a certain place was ghetto mm-hmm. and it was strictly because that's where people of color live and you can't say just people of color because I've gone to some some, some areas that, that are ghetto that, that there's there's not a black person, there's not a a, a a Hispanic person, and those are the only two really people that they that they classify as ghetto. Let me just call it fair. That is what it is. When they're it's either the blacks or it's either my people or the Hispanic people. And when I say Hispanic, I'm including all I'm I'm just generalizing the Latinx, Latin culture. Yep. Um, and that's what people believe. That's the belief system that they bring up. Um, and again, that's a prejudice. And until you call it for what it is and accept it what it is, you won't be able to even accept people for who they are. People could look at me and say, oh, he's always wearing a snapback, got the beard, got his ear pits, got the tattoos, talks with the slang. Oh, he must be ghetto. Not realizing that I'm just a few months out from getting my doctorate. You know what I mean? I've spent more time in school than most people who would judge me improperly have spent in their entire life in school. You know, I've been in college more years than most people have spent in their K-12 years. So again, to overcome prejudice, the first thing you got to do is accept that you have the prejudice and be open to get rid of the prejudice and not judge people based on what you see, 
what you hear, getting to know people. I think we talked on length, length about before about the when I was in college, living in my dorm, there was a young man who lived in our dorm who had swastikas tattooed all over him. And um, he had a tattoo that said white power. Um, he was from Missouri. And so one day that I think there was, must've been a holiday because there was very rare. It was not that many people in the dorms. He was in the dorm. I was in the dorm and we went to the lounge where you get your mail and stuff. And they had a pool table, ping pong table. And he was sitting at the pool table playing pool by himself. And I just walked up and said, Hey man, I said, you mind if we play together? And he was like, sure. I could have prejudged. And, and, and before then I, we had all judged him. Ain't nobody going to talk to him. Ain't nobody going to look at him. Don't even, don't even, da, 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 da. like that was, a, we all prejudged him. The moment I asked him to play pool, we found out there was so much that we had in common that it was ridiculous. We, and, and, and here's the craziest thing. The one thing that we found we had in common was our love for hip hop music. And so I introduced him to more different types of hip hop music. He introduced me to some Dixieland music and some bluegrass music that I, that I probably, I know I would have never listened to. But then as a musician, as an artist, I started to grab hold to certain concepts that they're doing and say, oh, this is blues. This is where you get this. This is how this. But again, it all came from accepting that we were, I did prejudge him, but the curiosity to know him was greater than the prejudice. The curiosity to want to understand what it is. And why? And since then, he's gone to get all of the, I think I told you the story, he's gotten all his tattoos removed. Uh, his family has kind of disowned him because that was kind of their heritage. Um, and then he ended up marrying a, a black woman, beautiful black woman. He's a, he, he's a doctor. She's a doctor. They have three beautiful children. You know, and so when you think about that, how can you sit and judge someone without giving them the opportunity to show you who they really are. I mean, do you, and I don't know that I've asked you, but I want to ask you again, do you think that that interaction with you was maybe what changed him? Did he have interactions with African-Americans? No, absolutely not. Every, he, he told me every interaction that he had with, with Black people from the, before that moment was all negative. all negative. And then my question to him was, well, what made you accept a game, playing a game with me? And to this day, we don't know what it was. You know, I, I, still, I was still the tattooed guy then. You know, I had a little bit more hair, but <laughs> didn't have the beard. But, <laughs> you know, I, I was still the same guy. And actually back then I was probably a lot worse because I think I was a little bit more militant because it was all raw energy without being refined. And I think that even as educators, we have to remember that about our kids. Our kids are coming to us raw. It is our job, education is what refines individuals. In any society, education is the refining process. In that refining process, you begin to, to find out who you are, 
what you stand for, what you won't stand for. And the only way you do that is through education. And I'm not speaking education as the classroom. I'm thinking education as life lessons. Those things that you learn throughout the day, because we're all educating ourselves daily. We're educating ourselves daily. We're constantly consuming some type of content. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't consume content. If, if I walk outside my house right now and took a walk in the woods, I'm consuming content. You're finally get away for those things you're understanding, you're, you're learning. Mm-hmm. So that way, if you get back in that situation again or a similar situation, you can handle it. Right. Like for me, if you drop me in the woods somewhere, most likely I'll be able to find my way out. Because I have so much experience in navigating and understanding and seeing things, you know, and, and you, you understand it. And granted, I'm not like someone who's on one of those survival shows or anything like that, but I, I have that experience. And how do you think discourse, a focus on discourse, not discourse that's one way. How do you think a, a focus on discourse would change the experience for our kids? Oh, it, 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 you cannot teach today without discourse. You cannot. Our students consume so much content, so much information, that if we don't give them the, 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 the vehicle or the mechanism in order to release that content is pressure. You know, I, I, I remember walking in my classroom and we had been watching the news. Um, this must have been last year. And I can't remember what was on the news. There was something on the news and the kids were watching, it and it was such a hot topic. And it's slipping my mind right now. Which I think it was maybe. Was. I think it was maybe immigration and the border wall. Mm, no, that uh-uh. it, 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 was, it was dealing with race, but I can't remember what it was. But I remember while the kids were watching it, you could just feel the pressure the energy, in the room. The energy start the energy to start rattle because again, they had already consumed so much of it, so that now they're here. So what I did was I didn't even teach math that day. Right. The full 90 minutes where we just pop the top on that thing and let's talk. Get it out. Speak. Speak. And I did that. I actually did that dealing with immigration at Stellick when we worked together yeah. with the group that graduated in 2020. Uh, and I remember that when I get when I paused the content that I wanted to give them to allow them to express, they knew once once that happened, they knew okay, this is the teacher who's going to listen to me. And I tell everybody, I, one of my biggest rules is we're going to honor each other's voice. We're going to speak to each other as if we're important and, important and as if we matter. And so when you give that to kids and you create an environment that they understand my voice matters, they'll open up more. They'll open up more. And when they open up more as an educator, I have to be willing to facilitate some really tough conversations. Some really tough conversations and help them gain the perspective 
that they need in order to be functioning adults. Because again, raw energy, you take raw energy and you start to refine it and you start to bring it together and focus it, you can create a laser that could burn a hole through a building just by collecting energy and refining it and repurposing it. And that's what our goal is in education. It's not to tell a kid you're wrong because you're loud. You know, I had a kid last year who he was so angry all the time and his thing would always be like, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. And when the kids finally realized, they were like, dude, stop saying you're right. You know, Mr. Lawton, he he's not trying to be right. He's trying to say what's right and wrong. And right now you're wrong. So the kids started to govern him and started to check him because they realized that I'm not in it to win it. I want you to win. And the only way I can get you to win is that I got to get you to, I got to force you to see yourself. You will never be a champion without looking at yourself in the mirror. You cannot be a champion before you look in the mirror because the first person that you have to beat, your first win has to come within yourself. That's your first W. You can't go undefeated until you defeat yourself. Defeat your doubt. Defeat, defeat your, 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 your self-consciousness. Your, you know, your defeat all those things that, that hold you down. And once you do that, now you can say, hey, I'm, right now I'm undefeated because I didn't beat me. And now it puts you in a good place to go out into the world and present that you that you just championed to the world. And now people can champion it with you. Well, and I love what you said there. And I wrote down notes for our next couple episodes because we want to we want to make sure that we're giving teachers actionable steps. And I think mm-hmm. we would need a whole nother episode to start to talk about the parameters for discourse when it comes to our kids. But also a whole nother episode on what self-discourse looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's where we're at. That's so critical. And and I really, you know, talking about it going forward as, you know, we're talking about discourse, I'm looking at it in the sense of, you know, you talk about, you know, people have to feel like they have to be right. That there is no way that multiple people could be right at the same time. And it's that, it you know, it's either, you can either look at it as scarcity, like there can only one, be one right answer there can only be a few people who win or it's that fixed mindset. It's, you know, those things we're overcoming when it comes to discourse, because I, you know, it's early July and you could say our country is full of just pent up raw emotion currently. And it doesn't seem like there are people out there at the highest levels of our society that are trying to do anything to curb it. It seems a lot like people are stoking it. Absolutely. I'm glad that's a good way to put it. That's what it feels like. It feels like raw emotion is being stoked right now. So as teachers, we have... And I was going to say challenge, but I'm going to say opportunity. Because in this current time, you and I have talked, we have a chance to be a part of history that changes 
the way our country works. And changes the way education works. And changes the way education works. And we have to accept if we're if we're looking in the mirror of what education is, we have to accept the reality that our kids are coming full of pent up raw their own raw emotion, full of the pent up raw emotion of their families, and full of the pent up raw emotion that our country is in. And they see all of it. Mm-hmm. You and I growing up, if we didn't read a newspaper or watch the six o'clock news with dinner, we didn't get news. We weren't bombarded with it all the time. Right. And now it's literally everywhere. You can't, it's like you almost, you can't escape it. You can't, you know? But it's also giving information and I don't want to go too scientific on it. It's giving so much information to a population of children who cognitively have not developed the tools to properly um, to properly process that information. So you're putting so much information into, you know, it's like you're turning up the pressure cooker and the top's not all the way on there. It's not sealed completely. You know, I used to love watching the old show Moonshiners, you know, and we know <laughs> when, when they would make the, the moonshine, uh, the, you know, they would talk about that pressure that it creates when they're, when they're heating it and they're distilling it, that if it's not properly sealed and you get just a little bit of vapor coming out of there, that little bit of vapor could start a drip. And that drip could then start an ex- cause an explosion. And that's where a lot of issues came back when people were trying to, you know, people who moonshine, that the whole thing would blow up. People would lose their lives, lose their arms. Why? Because they did not, it was too much information, too much pressure, and you're trying to ask it to, to consume too much and do too much. Well, and it also has to have some kind of safety valve on it to let, to release off. that right and see as adults our cerebral cortex can do that we can do that we've learned to do that even though we don't operate in there all the time as adults we we, we talked about that <laughs> we, we don't always operate that way as adults and so our kids are learning to watch us you know as a parent who who would say i don't want my kids to say certain words our leadership in our country, I don't want her paying attention to what they say. I tell my, I used to tell my kids that my daughter would tell you right now, shut up is a bad word. She's 14 next month. And she still doesn't say shut up. Because that's something that we taught her growing up that you don't tell people. You say be quiet or hush. Shut up is disrespectful. And so when you see it in the news that you have politicians who are telling people they just need to go shut up or politicians who are saying, I agree that we should go out here and start using more violence to counteract violence. That's like saying, I'm going to use gasoline to put out the fire. It does not make sense. And in the classroom, it is the exact same. The classroom is a, 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 a microcosm of of the real world. 
And as teachers, we have to learn how to facilitate our own world. This, 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 uh, this, this, uh, what is the word? Um, Ecosystem. Um, this controlled environment for kids that actually shows them the proper way to do different things. How do you have a disagreement? How do you, how do you learn something new? How do you recover from a failure? How, how, do, you, do, you, how do you not take things personal? I mean, so again, how to set objectives, how to set goals, you know, how to, how to win. How to win how graciously to and how to lose graciously. So all of these things we have to teach our kids, but our kids now today, they're not seeing that on the news. Clearly, some of our politicians need to come back to school. You know, they need to have them a, a Billy Madison moment. You know, and, I, and you know, and I, <laughs> that was Billy Madison, right? Yes, Billy Madison. He uh, shout out to Adam Sandler, man. You gotta love Adam Sandler. Hilarious. <laughs> but you know that that needs to happen a lot, I believe, because again, I asked my daughter the other day. Would she want to be in a teacher's classroom if she knew that teacher had beat up a student and killed that student? And she said no. And immediately I said, then how do we expect for people to accept police officers back in the streets who've done the exact same thing? Both of us are public servants. Why is it okay for one and not the other? Yeah. So again, I think in the classroom, engaging students in discourse is going to sit heavily on how well you structure the questions that you ask them, how you structure your entire classroom to be one of discourse, and don't treat it as a one-off. It's not a segment in a learning plan. It is your learning. If your learning plan does not include discourse, then I'm going to say rewrite it. You know, man, I think that is a great place to stop. I have five notes of episodes that we could expand on just based on these, these first two conversations were, which I'm excited about, man. And, you know, we, we didn't do a great job this past year on the podcast. We, we just didn't do a good job and we're not going to make excuses for it, but we've been very fortunate that during this time of uh, stay at home orders that we really embraced it. And, you know, we, I remember we both saw the video by ET that said, if you don't come out better, you're doing something wrong. And I feel like we're, we're coming out better. So we want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of the value adds value podcast i'm kyle krieger you can find me online as it's kyle krieger and uh will you want to sign us off here all right man i just want to last words i want to say to everybody is encourage that energy that your kids bring into the classroom uh and, and getting the kids to have a conversation about their energy as we're moving in back into and schools are going to be opening up in august and kids are going to come into those classrooms be open enough to have those conversations. 
And I heard someone say the other day, I think it was actually, it was Sandra Bland. I was listening to Sandy Speaks in one of her episodes to say, she said, one of the things that the problem is, is that white people don't have enough black friends and black people don't have enough white friends. So if you know that you are a white person and you know you have absolutely no contact outside of media uh, with, with a black person or a brown person, then my, my, my challenge to you is to find you a community where you can start having those conversations now, especially if you know you're going in the classroom teaching our black and our brown kids. Find you a group, begin to have that discourse. You know, in our men's group, uh, I think tonight is our, our book study on white fragility. Uh, so again, start finding, doing your research, but don't just do research, actually go in and have a conversation with people that don't look like you. Gain their perspective and be transparent to say, look, I don't know and I'm trying to learn. That way, when you get ready to open up to have them the discourse with the kids, that you don't stand as an expert and you don't stand as a judge, you stand as a partner with them and you receive what they have to say so that you can give it back to them. So that's it. We're happy that you're here. Keep listening, like, subscribe, uh, share with someone, and we're out.